Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, Steven Spielberg brings movies to Netflix. We review F9, and the great Steven Soderbergh is our guest. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 170 of Real Blend, a podcast that considers fat-free Tootsie Rolls to be space food. My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend. Uh, and this week's show, Steven Spielberg is going to begin making movies for Netflix. But that's like, he's not really making them for Netflix, he's producing them. So, right? Did I read that the wrong way? I don't know. We'll get to that later in the show. Uh, F9. The Fast Saga hits theaters, and we have our reviews, uh, and Steven Soderbergh, oh, guys, Steven Soderbergh is our guest on this week's episode. Academy uh, Award winner, Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, yes, uh, discussing his new HBO Max original film, No Sudden Move, which is also fantastic. Um, and we will talk about Steven, Sp- uh, Steven Soderbergh and Steven Spielberg uh, with Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kev. Uh, Sean, Gabe, Jacob, good to see you guys. And honestly, it's crazy that Soderbergh's on our show this week because I've been trying to interview him my whole career, <laughs> and we and we and we finally got him for Real Blend, and it's forty-five to fifty minutes of just nerd out discussion. So it's, only- it's a big deal. Well, I mean, you know, just sort of a peek behind the curtain is Steven Soderbergh famously does not do uh, five-minute TV junket slots. And my joke has always been, okay, cool, give him to me for an hour. Like, that's, you know. Um, and so, I, you know, I think we were all talking earlier about it. it's one of those situations where we just assume, well, I guess we're just not going to get him then because uh, we do five-minute TV junket slots. But lo and behold, we have a podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's That you guys are listening to, which we thank you very much for that. Uh, Kevin, by the way, uh, from now on, please don't refer to Jake as Jacob anymore. The only Jacob that I will acknowledge is Jacob Toretto. Uh, yes. So you're going to confuse me if you refer to him as Jacob because I'll immediately okay. look for John Cena. Now I won't be able to see John Cena, of course. <laughs> but that I joke will look for never him. Never gets old. No, it's, it's, I mean, old. is there that much of a difference between John Cena and myself? No, not at all. Mm, let me think about that. Let me table that to the uh, <laughs> to the end of the conversation. Uh, housekeeping. If you're watching us on YouTube, hello. Uh, thank you for joining us. Please head down to the. 
descriptions and you can give us a like and a subscribe and notifications and all that jazz. If you're listening to us where you get your audio needs met, in the description, you're going to find out where you can sign up for the premium episodes. Uh, and the premium episodes are a lot of fun. We drop them on when, uh, no, sorry, Monday. We drop them on Mondays. Uh, it's a bonus episode with all of us. Gabe takes the the controls of that show and guides us to some some wild areas. Uh, Gabe Kovach, how are you? Say hello. Hi, guys. I'm, I'm doing well. Good. Good to see you. Uh, and then we have some exciting news to eventually share, um, but we can't yet. So what I would say is, uh, as you're listening to this, this? well, as you're doing this, um, I guess just periodically check the Real Blend uh, Twitter feed. And once we're able to um, share details, I am going to guess that the tweet that you are alluding to will launch before this episode does. Before this episode drops. we can't quite say because hashtag if it happens, you know. This would be the ultimate case. Of big news dropping after we record. <laughs> yes. But 100%. like our news. It's, it's our news. About, about right. us. Yes. So just just stay tuned to, 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 to Twitter, the socials. And, and this is arguably the biggest if it happens ever. Yeah, I think so. For this show. Yeah. But, I think it qualifies. But it, and yes, it, it qualifies as a hashtag if it happens. But right now, I'd argue it's hashtag. It's probably going to happen. It's, gonna happen. it's really close to happening. That's, don't that jinx it. Yeah, that Daenerys is excited. It. Like it's, <laughs> if it All happens. Right. Yes. All right. So we, hopefully on the on the Twitter feed, you'll have news about that. Um, like we said, Steven Soderbergh is this week's guest. But Friday, uh, Friday, we're also going to have a bonus episode. We haven't had a bonus episode in a while. Um, but we got to see the film Zola, which is coming to theaters. And I believe paid VOD. Uh, and director Janixa Bravo joins us for a bonus interview episode. She was fantastic. Uh, the movie is fascinating. Uh, it's one you should seek out as it comes to your market. So uh, look for the bonus episode on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Do you guys know if that's paid VOD? I'm pretty sure. I know it's definitely check. theaters. Definitely theaters. Um, okay. I will double check on that for sure. All right, while I'll, you're I doing that, an answer. I'm going to do the weekly poll and I'm going to give it to Jake. And the, uh, an- the question uh, was, because I know you watched it, this is not, I don't want to know your answer. I want to know sure. what you think the audience said. I know, but uh, I, this is, I saw, I saw what the question was. And I remember thinking, God, I hope he doesn't call on me this week. Cause I don't, I genuinely don't know what people, how few people feel about this movie. Good. I have an answer. Yes. Uh, it says the film will open in theaters nationwide Wednesday, June 30th. My assumption would be that after a few weeks or whatever, it would go to some type of streaming service or on demand. But from what I'm understanding, it's just theaters at the moment. Awesome. If you're not uh, jittery and anxious enough, uh, look up Zola. It, it will plunge you into uh, into almost like an uncut gems level of a uh, yeah. good comparison. Um, okay, so Jake, what did you think uh, of Luca by the audience? Loved yeah. it, pretty good. Disappointing or didn't watch it? I, Why are you having a hard time with this? You're really wrestling because I I've got I've I've seen on social media like a chasm of different opinions about this film. Um, so because I've seen people trashing it, I've been seeing people hailing it. I've seen people trashing the people that are hailing it. I've seen people hailing the people that are trashing it. I'm going to say <laughs> it's somewhere in, I've seen a lot of things. I got a lot of time. Um, I'm going to say because of that, that our opinion lies somewhere in the middle. Well, the, the hold people. on, because before you guess, I'll let you know that the winner got 59% of the vote. Oh God. Now I don't know. Um, I'm just going to say they thought it was pretty good because it's Pixar. 59% didn't watch it. Believe it or not, just didn't oh watch God. it. Just Why do we even straight up option. Why do we ignored. Make option? <laughs> uh, the twelve point five percent would be second place. They loved it. Oh no, I'm sorry. Wait, twenty four percent. It got pretty good. 
24% would be second, then 12.5, and then only 4.2 is that disappointing. Um, I, I, I can't go as far as disappointing. Um, I guess I'd go pretty good. I didn't love it. I thought it was perfectly fine. Um, I, I thought it was sweet. It's sweet for kids. It's oh, we're going to talk about it later? Yeah. It's bad? You guys are saying it's bad? No, I didn't say it's bad. No. Oh, oh no. I thought you said bad. I'm sorry. You guys spoke at the same time, and I thought you guys said it's bad. No, I, and I, I know we have to move on, so I'll just say this. Soul is a top-tier Pixar. Oh, Luca yeah. is Luca is a, I feel like a different a, a drop in quality in terms of. And if you'd uh, like uh, to uh, hear Kevin and Sean's full thoughts on that, we talked about it last yeah. week. Yep. Ah, there you go. See, there you, you go. Can do that. Tune <laughs> you in to last week's show. But you know what we didn't do last week, guys, is talk to Steven Soderbergh for 45 minutes. Uh, he has I, a new no, film. actually, we did. Did was where was I? Oh, how was it? It was, it was great. Good. Was it better than this one? Um. <laughs> I just want to preface this by saying, so first off, um, Soderbergh has a movie coming to HBO on July 1st, HBO Max, uh, and it's called No Sudden Move, and it's a period piece, kind of. It's a crime gangster film, also. It's kind of, I've been telling people it's kind of Soderbergh doing Coen Brothers. To me, it's this is as close to Fargo as he's ever made. I can yeah, see I that. Say, With, like, I someone say, like, if, kind yeah. of in over their heads... There's a little bit of like uh, corporate espionage, but like with a bunch of idiots where like people don't super know what's going on. People aren't quite as, for lack of a better word, stupid as sometimes they are in, in Coen Brothers dark comedies. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely that like average guy who thinks he can outsmart professional criminals and then realizes halfway through his plan that he has made a huge mistake. Yeah, it's basically like if you took Ocean's Eleven and Out of Sight, kept the R rating for Out of Sight, and then added a sprinkle of Fargo. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what this movie is. In a great way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that, if that's and... not an elevator pitch for you, I don't know <laughs> yeah, what yeah, podcast yeah. are you listening to. Well, one of the things I just want to mention to to either pat ourselves on the back or maybe couch the fact that why this is a disappointing interview, although I don't think that it is. We were told the night before this happened that we were going to get 45 minutes with Steven Soderbergh. Like, there was a, a gap in his schedule that opened up. Warner Brothers pitched us for him. Uh, we immediately said yes, because, of course, we wanted time with Soderbergh. And then the three of us got to work very rapidly. Uh, of putting questions together. And so uh, here's the result. Steven, uh, sees Steven Soderbergh on the Roblin Podcast. Steven Soderbergh, it is an absolute honor to have you on our show. We are a filmmaking podcast and we cannot wait to talk to you because we love this film. We genuinely love this film. We've been texting about it uh, all day today. Um, I want to start off by asking you about the lenses that you use in this film because I was blown away by how wide it was and even like the morphing of the sides. Um, It was gorgeous. And I wanted to ask you about the choice of the lenses and picking up that much image in your frame. Yeah, I mean, these are the, I don't want to say anything bad about the Koa anamorphic company, um, but but in in sort of traditional terms, in Squaresville terms, these are not lenses that would get off the bench at Panavision. Like, and that's <laughs> that's what I liked about them. And that's what I wanted because I was I was trying to I was trying to recreate the the feeling of those early scope films where there was there was distortion you couldn't get people very close to the lens because close focus on the lens was like six feet like it was a whole it was a it was there were anomalies that i thought were were really wonderful um but i also wanted the ability to get the camera close to people when I wanted to and move the camera in a way that back in 1954 would have been difficult, if not impossible. And, and that really comes into play during 
the sequence at the Wurtz home, um, the the fact that we could that's a, you know that's a real house, and you can see how how tight it is in there without the the technology that exists now in terms of the scale of the cameras and the support system for the cameras. I mean, you wouldn't be able to do what we did in that home. I mean, it was just impossible. Yeah. And in some of the there, frames, there was like shadows um, on the on, on the on the how, why does that happen? Just out of curiosity. Well, that was so the the widest of those lenses had a pretty significant vignette effect. And so what we ended up doing, we did two things. There was so much distortion on the ends that actually, instead of having the film be in 2.4.0, we shrank it to 2.16. So it's not, a, it's not a full scope image because that extra information was just so distorted that it was kind of distracting, frankly. So I kind of, I kind of blew it up a little bit so that you felt it, but you're, you, when you saw the whole thing, like you, your eye just went over to the corner because it was so weird looking. Um, and so that what we ended up having to do then is matching that vignette effect for the other tighter lenses so that there was some consistency. Wow, that's awesome. That's there's a great awesome. also, you know, there's a great yeah. rack focus between Don Cheadle and the young daughter in, uh, in the home year, which was just, in fact, I think I audibly said, oh shit, whenever you did that, it was beautiful. <laughs> um, you know, whenever you are working with such an, a massive ensemble of A-list stars, whether it's this film or, or Oceans or Traffic or Contagion, I'm sort of curious as a director, how important or, or maybe even how difficult is it to ensure that every star kind of has like their moment to shine in the film? Is it, is it, is it difficult to make sure that everyone kind of gets sort of their, their Oscar moment for lack of a better word? Yeah, it, it's, it's a challenge and, and, and it's one that you have to accept and, and meet because it's, it's, if you're not gonna do that, if you're not gonna give them a moment then why are they in the movie? I mean, I think that's most people's response is why is so-and-so in the movie? They had nothing to do. And it's really not about volume. It's, it's really about content in the sense that it's just, they just have to be good scenes. So for me, for instance, he's great in all the scenes in the movie, but my, my favorite scene in the most important scene for me of for John Hamm is the discussion with Matthew out on the street. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good scene. And John and John is John in that scene is doing, you know, I look at that and I go, I just don't know anybody else who could do who, you know, in my mind, that is exactly what John is great at is what he does in that scene with Noah. So you know, yeah, Ed and I were were very conscious of the fact that that that's got to be a good scene. And, and I knew directorially, like, I've got to serve this well. And one of the ways I did that was to kind of calm the film down visually for a minute. It's very simply staged and shot mm -hmm. because you you just want to be focused on that. Like, that's. There, there are other times where you're justified throwing the camera around a little bit. This is not that. And so, you know, I was really, I was really happy with that. And that's a scene that in some, in some universes, you would get a lot of pressure 
to lose because, quote, nothing happens uh, mm-hmm. when actually a lot happens. Oh, it informs so much about yeah. Ham's character in that moment, too. It tells you how smart he is and how far ahead of the game he is. And that's the 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 way that the game shifts so often in this film is what I loved so much about it. I, it kept me so riveted. Um, you know, in researching this film, and, and and after after seeing it, I realized that everybody who you cast is honestly really perfect for their roles. I can't imagine mm-hmm. anyone else. But I do love when you work with George Clooney, and he's one of my favorite actors of all time. And I just, I think your collaborations are fantastic. I understand he was in the running for this, and I was curious what part he was out for. We we had a very preliminary discussion about Mike Lowen um, and it just turned out it, it wasn't physically possible at the time. Um, but it was it was it was I was happy to know that that he was open to that conceptually um, and and it provided a kind of. Opening. Uh, to to another collaboration. I mean, I think I think we both came away. I think he was happy that that I brought it up to him, and I was happy that, like I said, that conceptually he was open to it. There were just logistical hurdles we couldn't overcome. So you know, we know it's we know that if we're going to do something, it's got to be special. Like it's got to be. It's got to be him doing something that's 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 um, different than what we've done before, and and you know is a real showcase. Like I'm very uh, I'm very aware of that that pressure. That's amazing. You know, Stephen, I I uh, I love the little details about this film. Like even something as small as like we learn that Del Toro's character doesn't like washing dishes. It just gives you so much insight into who the character is. But one of my favorite little details was in Noah's room, the Hell Dorado poster on the wall, the Roy Rogers film. And I wanted to ask you, like, I guess, the kind of two parts. Like, what posters you had on your wall growing up as a kid that were movie related or music related, and what was the choice to put Hell Dorado, that specific film, in Noah's room? Well, in my case, it was mostly you, th- there would be no surprises there. I think um, if you saw a picture of my room when I was a teenager, um, you know, last detail, Jaws, like it was, it was, you know, I was, I was all of the all of the films that and filmmakers that were influencing me. I was uh, paying tribute to by by covering my walls with with poster <laughs> posters and lobby cards and like all kinds of stuff. And in that case, that's you know part of the fun of of making a movie, but especially making a period movie, is being presented, you know, with options that provide that are that are small, but provide an opportunity if they're considered um to to amplify the the universe of the movie like yeah. all that stuff adds up and that's why you need to when somebody comes to you and and this is mostly what the job is is the 10,000 questions a day um <laughs> but you need to really think about those answers and so of the of the options that we looked at when I saw, you know, it really became a converse, a three-way conversation between the production designer, the set decorator, and the costume designer, because you can see there, there's, when you look at the way Matthew is dressed 
in the movie, it feels like that poster. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. And everything in his room, it's clear like he's got some sort of Western fixation or something's going on with this kid. It's never mm. spoken, but it's there. And, and that's, that's the fun part is, is coming up with ways for all of that stuff to, to accumulate. Um, even if people can't articulate what, what, what they've seen, they, they can feel it. They can feel, they can feel intention. I mean, that's when I watch, when I watch a film, what I'm looking for is a, a sense of intention about everything. And when I see a movie in which it's clear, this, this, wow, this is every decision here is just the absolute middle of the spectrum. Like there's just nothing distinctive here. And they're not taking advantage of all the tools that you have to, to create a specific universe that people feel is, is real. I mean, I know it sounds crazy to, to, to talk about realism when you, when you're discussing a movie, but I think people can sense it's just believability. Do they believe that they're that you've transported them to this place or do they not? Because you haven't done a very good job of of creating the universe. Hmm. Jake, I don't mean to jump in, but Mr. Soderbergh, I got to follow up the masks that the three criminals wear. They felt low ranger ish to me. Is that because of the time period? Was that even a nod? Benicio, again, this is why it's it's smart to hire smart people. <laughs> Benicio showed me a photograph that he found of a kid. It was a picture taken in the late 40s, I think, early 50s. This weird, random picture of a kid wearing a mask like that. And I just said, <laughs> that is so disturbing. And so <laughs> it's so disturbing, but it's so simple. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, but it was just... No, I just looked at it and went, who would like who would design that? <laughs> like it was just wrong in in the exact right way. And it and it's it also turned out to solve some real practical problems because when we were exploring the version in which, you know, we're essentially doing the killing and and everybody's wearing like masks like Sterling Hayden. A couple of things happen. A, they're extraordinarily uncomfortable and they're, <laughs> they're, ex, they're extended scenes where they have to wear these. And that's a thing. Secondly, they're they're distracting in the wrong way, like to see Don and Kieran and Benicio in that kitchen for that length of time wearing like Halloween masks. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, you'd, you'd literally go like, you know, I'm kind of tired of looking at that. Mm-hmm. This was like it was functional. And yet you just looked at their eyes. Mm. Right. Uh, yeah. So yeah. It, it, in a weird sort of way, it actually focused you. Um, <laughs> so, again, if, if he hadn't pulled this photograph, uh, they, they would have had like clown masks on, you know. Yeah, I was wow. reading that when he put when he put the blanket over that uh, woman uh, in the scene that that was actually improv because he was wanted to really? take the mask off, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great That's visual. Genius. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's so again, it's so out of it's so weird, but it feels true. Like that, he, yeah. 
It felt true to the character, 100%. That's incredible. Um, you know, uh, Stephen, I, I read an interview with David Fincher after House of Cards came out, and he said, you know, I, I know I nailed this because I had politicians reaching out to me saying, like, hey, you really got it right. And very similar with, with Aaron Sorkin in The West Wing. I think he said that he spoke with a president who said, like, yeah, for the most part, like, you nailed it. But when you make films like this one, or films like Traffic, or films like The Oceans Trilogy, or Out of Sight, who do you want feedback from to know that you nailed it? Like, who, like, do you ever have anyone from those worlds kind of touch base and go like, hey, dude, just so you know, like, you, you kind of got it right. Um, I have never had any thieves or criminals reach out um, and, and compliment the veracity of <laughs> anything that I've directed. Um, I mean, yeah, I think in the case of traffic or contagion, um, there, there were people in those fields who reached out afterwards and said, I think that was pretty accurate and, and fair, uh, 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 an accurate and fair representation of that milieu. So that's, that's nice. And then, I mean, this was a really weird one. Mark Whitaker, the subject of the informant coming to the, coming to the premiere in New York, and basically saying, you nailed it. <laughs> and uh, I mean, like, and he's, he's there with Ginger. And I, I, what did, you're just, I was speechless. Like, I didn't even know what to say to that. Um, and then he goes, you know, that thing about doing two things at the same time, like when you're, you got shampoo in your hair, but you're still doing like, your, he goes, how did you know that? <laughs> He goes, I do that. Like, how did you know that? And I was like, Scott Burns. <laughs> well, I, I, Kevin, I'm going to jump in really quickly for a follow-up. Stephen, you mentioned Contagion and, uh, and, and finding out that, that you nailed that. Uh, I'm just curious as to how the last 18 months have changed your perspective of that movie, because I, I know everyone went back and, and rewatched that movie uh, really when things kind of started to, to happen last year. And, uh, I mean, to me, that was the absolute comfort. There were a lot of things that were eerily uh, spot on in terms of how people were going to behave yeah. when that sort of thing happened. Yeah, I think the thing that we missed is, you know, Jude Law was was supposed to kind of represent a single note in a larger chord. We, we really didn't anticipate that somebody like Jude or, or a sort of uh, a, from a philosophical standpoint would become the entire chord. That we didn't see coming. Um, we didn't see coming that you might have uh, leadership that, that was actively working against uh, certain solutions uh, yeah. that, that we, we just never imagined that we would find ourselves in that situation. So there were, there were a couple of things that we missed. Um, but generally speaking, um, the science, you know, I think holds up and, and like you said, tracks pretty closely with, with what happened, which is not a feat because everybody told us, this is how it will happen. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we were prescient even. Every epidemiologist we were working with said, probably a bat, probably a wet market in Asia. Wow. 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 So, wow. you know, that's, that's, that was the, you know, that was just the, the we were just responding to, to the general consensus. And, you know, it's been 
it's been very, very it's been very strange to watch it to watch it like happen um, and and know, especially in our case, that you know didn't have to be this bad. Like it really didn't have to be this bad. The good news is the technology that allowed us to get to a vaccine this quickly didn't exist when we made contagion. We, we that was another thing we kind of cheated on was how quickly they got a vaccine back then in 2011. Yeah. Um, this this new technology that just emerged like four years ago uh, got they had a vaccine that was essentially the vaccine that's in your arm now in January of last year. Mm. That's how fast they were able to break it down and target what they needed to target. Like that is a miracle. It's unbelievable how quickly that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Mr. Soderbergh, um, I was able to talk to your entire cast. We've all been able to sort of do TV rooms and each of them uh, to a person praised uh, Ed Solomon's script and just the, the world that it created. This is one of the very few movies that I've it, it, it ended and I wished to God that it went to another two hours or was a series so I could live longer in this world with these characters. Um, by the time we meet up with them, they all have a very rich history quite often with each other and, and things get referenced. And um, and I'm just curious from your perspective, how much you even care to be privy to that? Or do you just want to tease it and you really focused on the, the two hours that we get with them? Well, I, I think you're I think they're right to 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 give ed props um it's it's he just said you know i think he's always had this ability but i think as he as he continues to work and as we continue to work together um his understanding of plot and character are 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 so strong and and it's it's rare to it's rare to find people that know both like it's it's usually people are a little stronger in one area than they are in the other even if they're able to do both well ed ed is just, he's just equally strong at character and at just pure plot just math and and so it's for me it's such a it's such a luxury because all, all, all I get to like throw out ideas and say things to him like, uh, oh, I want, I want the, I want the climax of the movie to be like the scene in absence of malice with Wilford Brimley. And then Ed's got to go like, okay, I guess I'll, (laughs) I'll figure that out. Um, You know, like, so it's, it's, and as we were talking about, there's even recalibration that's happening while we're shooting. And as I'm assembling the film and we're trying to assess what I think in these kinds of movies is the is the is one of the hardest things to do other than just the overall tone. And that is. What information is released and when mm-hmm. these are movies in which if people get confused in the wrong way they're they're out and and yet you want them reaching for you and and that is all about what do they know and when do they know it and and that's that's a large part of the conversation and as we were assembling during shooting we did a couple of rewrites and reshoots 
because I felt like I really think this piece of information, we need to know this here. And then when we were editing, I did a, a restructure in the middle of the film to address this issue. I had people, you know, I had friends coming back watching the movie going, when I hit this patch, I, I kind of drifted. Mm. And, and, and they weren't saying like the scenes aren't good or anything like that. Uh, they were just, they were literally going, I don't know how to tell you to fix it. I just, I can just tell you when I hit this point in the film until you get back to the Gotham hotel, I was kind of adrift. What invaluable mm. feedback though. That feedback is invaluable. Oh no, no. And these are smart people. Um, some of them very tough, like, you got to take a breath before you show them something because you know they're gonna they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna come at you. Um, but what I realized was it was a it was a release of information issue. And what I ended up doing was pulling forward the motel scene between David Harbor and Frankie Shaw mm -hmm. that used to occur much later in that evening, moving it up and putting it right next to the phone call where he's trying to get his wife on the phone. You now have been given a backstory about how this whole thing started mm -hmm. and the level of corporate, you know, interest and, and the stakes that you really need going into the stuff that's coming up, which mm -hmm. is reaching out to Ray Liotta and, you know, trying to navigate uh, Don trying to then you know, parlay the Ray Liotta into going to Studebaker. Like when you have that motel scene, now all those connections and what he's doing track. Like you, you understand, oh shit, these guys are in way over their head and he really doesn't know when to stop. Like it's true, his, his reputation for not knowing when to stop. Like it's really, we're seeing it now play out. And so, you know, that's, that again, it, Ed's understanding of, of that process and willingness to, to not be precious is, is extraordinary. Like you could have somebody who's as talented in Ed and if they didn't have Ed's personality, um, you know, you could be in for a tough time, but Ed, Ed's, Ed's like me, all we're just focused on the thing. Like what does the thing want to be? And, you know, that's all we care about. Everything else, you know, is a discussion. Um, I do believe there should be a decider at the end of the day. Somebody needs to decide. Um, but I also believe in, in sort of, you know, stress testing this stuff to make sure that, that you can defend it. And that it's and it's that people aren't. Like I said, they're not. They're, they're intrigued by what they don't know, as opposed to just being annoyed. You know, Mr. Soderbergh, this is one of my favorite films you've made in your career. And I genuinely mean that because I have been following your movies since I was a kid and growing up. Like your, your films really were a massive part of my filmmaking journey as, as somebody who loves movies. And, you know, I was interested in knowing this because I remember in 2000, you did Logan Lucky. You came out of retirement and that, and that aspect. 
Um, and then you read stories now about Quentin Tarantino where he says he wants to stop after 10 movies uh, and because uh, the later you get in your career, he doesn't want, he doesn't want to make any bad films. And I, I, I just wonder what your thoughts are on that because like I'm watching this movie yesterday and I'm like, this is one of Soderbergh's best movies and he's made this way late in his career. And I just wanted to know your thoughts on, and, on what Tarantino has to say about retirement and kind of why you came back out of retirement as well. Well, it's a fear that all filmmakers have. Uh, it's a feel. It's a fear that all artists have, but 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 filmmakers in particular are 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 terrified by by the idea of falling off. It's mm. it's mostly because it's rare that people don't. Um, you can probably count on one hand the the number of filmmakers that that were still at their best when they stopped or died or whatever. And so I, I was <laughs> I was saying to somebody the other day, if you get a couple of filmmakers together within minutes, this subject starts to bubble up. And the trick is, you know, by whose criteria are, are you are you judging this? Like, how do how do you come to some sort of objective? Can you come to some sort of objective understanding where you look at yourself in the mirror and go, I don't have it anymore, or at least I don't have enough of it to to sustain, you know, the level that I've established. Um, I don't know. So I, I understand Quentin's impulse to 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 not want to fall off. I mean, I I, I get it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've had joking conversations with friends about what they should do to me if they truly believe that I've lost my skill set. Um, but I think I think you can see from No Sudden Move, and, and you'll see from Kimmy the thing that we're editing now. Um, my engagement is as complete as it's ever been. Not that I've had periods where I wasn't engaged, but I think you can, I think partially coming out of COVID, I had a lot of just pent up visual energy. And so the film has a very sort of muscular, you know, elaborate visual style that, um, that I was really, excited about exploring because these kinds of films can handle that. You know what I mean? That one of the reasons I think I returned to this genre repeatedly is the opportunities that it provides visually. You can, you can, you can, you can really indulge in some, some style and not have the audience be, you know, distracted by that or frustrated by they when you're talking about crime films, they want that they want style. Mm. And so um, this, you know, when I got on set, I was I was I was loaded like I was ready. I was ready to shoot some shit. <laughs> Hell yes. Hell yes. And you can tell that in the movie, man. It's such uh, a great film. Yeah, that attitude comes film. across. Hell sure. yeah. That might be my favorite quote of all time. I was ready to yeah. shoot some shit. Hard to believe that uh, that this year is the 20th anniversary of, of Ocean's Eleven. And uh, I was speaking with George Clooney uh, a couple of months ago for, for his latest film. And he mentioned about how difficult 
films like that are to make. He was saying, you know, he goes, they look fun and everyone goes and you enjoy them, but you have no idea how difficult it is to pull off a film like that. And I happen to think it's a, it's a per, I would put it in my very small folder of perfect films. I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I'm sort of curious, what is it about a film like that that is surprisingly difficult to, to pull off? Um, balance. There, 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 there's so many ideas that are being serviced, so many characters that are being serviced. So you're, you're, it, it's, it's, it's an even more elaborate version of what I was talking about with No Sudden Move, which is how much information are we putting out there and in what sequence um, to keep people sort of pulling through it how do we make sure that everybody has a moment? Um, is the is the is the MacGuffin working? Um, if not, what do we have to do to shore that up? Um, all of the there and the whole point is, you know, it's supposed to feel breezy, yeah. and yeah. and the 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 real world experience of the the oceans movies for example for me as a director is that they're very hard like that they're they're something like traffic comparatively in terms of my experience traffic was easy really? oh yeah traffic wow. was easier than oceans 11 <laughs> oh yeah not even really? not even close that was easy wow. i knew exactly what that was there was no i didn't have a moment's hesitation about anything we were doing, didn't have to like that, that, that was just, you know, not hard in the way that oceans was hard, where I would find myself occasionally sending everybody off the set so that I could figure out how we should do something. Cause I felt it's not, it's not alive. Like something's not right. And I would just stop until I figured it out. And, and it requires, you know, a fairly sophisticated, hopefully visual scheme and you're shooting out a sequence and I don't storyboard. So I'm, I'm, I'm building it on the fly. And, you know, that's not necessarily, uh, I'm sure some people would be horrified <laughs> to hear that, but honestly, it's, it's kind of, a, it's, it's driven by, a lack of imagination in the sense that until I've seen it, I don't know how I want to shoot it. And when I say until I've seen it, I mean, we're on set, you are in your costumes and we're blocking. We are, wow. we are figuring, we are, we're starting from just show up on set. Let's just run the scene. Forget there are no cameras yet. Let's just get this scene figured out. Once I've seen that and I'm happy with the blocking and how that then it's not hard for me to go. It's this, 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 and this. Here are the cut points. You know, let's go. And at that point, you know, they're ready. They're wired. And we go right from solving the blocking to shooting. And they don't leave. Nobody leaves until we're done. So that's just the way that I, I have to work. But on an Oceans movie, you know, you're, you're committing to certain visual ideas that you will have to either pay off, pay off or support months later. And you're, you're just hoping. Was the uh, consistent eating pits idea or was that your yeah. idea for him? <laughs> I love no, that the thing. first time he did that, I went, 
I like it, but you know, you do, you do understand what you're committing to here. (laughs) It sounds like a great idea. The first time I go, are you down with this? And he goes, I'm, I can do it. And the first scene that in which that became an issue, he picked shrimp, (laughs) which I thought was like, bold. (laughs) It's a bold move. Yeah. Um, Going back over your filmography, Mr. Soderbergh, you have an incredible um, access to, a, to an ensemble and to actors who want to work with you. And, and I would assume that at this point now, uh, there are so many actors who would love to be part of a Steven Soderbergh film who want to collaborate with you. But, every, you know, you it's not like you have a Christopher Guest style, you know, day players, but you have people you keep going back to. And I, I wanted to know, like, when you choose to to bring in Don Cheadle for a role or to, to bring Benicio back versus working with, you know, Logan Lucky, where, you know, everyone praised Daniel Craig for the work that you did with him or Adam Driver. Uh, how do you make those choices? Because I would assume you, you have a pretty, uh, the ability to pick and choose who you want to put in those parts. People say no. Do they really? People say no all the time. Um, and for a variety of reasons. Um, so it's, it's, you know, my philosophy is you get who you're supposed to get. Like I never, I never sweat when somebody says, no, I don't, I'm not angry. I don't, you know, I don't have a, a crisis of confidence because I'm no, I've seen it happen. It's like, you get who you're supposed to get. Mm-hmm. Now in this case, I really wanted to find something to do with Don. Um, he and I, you know, I think established a really good, um, friendship and you know he's one of my favorite actors on the planet and so f- for some time I'd been looking for something so when I went to Ed with this two sentence idea three guys who don't know each other are brought together to do a job and you know it, it all goes sideways I told him I want to do this as a vehicle for Don. Like Don is the the sort of starting point for this. So, you know, the rest of it kind of evolved in a very um, organic way. And and including, you know, at a certain point. um, Someone one of our leads, I won't say who, but one of our leads couldn't do the film like when we when we started up again uh there was a conflict because of some covid stuff in another project and they had to drop out and we had to find somebody else quickly um turned out you know we got who we were were supposed to get and so you know it's so it's a combination of people i've worked with before opportunities to work with somebody that we've uh not been exposed to. And then also it's fun. Like when you go to Detroit, there are a couple local cast members there that were spectacular. Like really Don's Don's ex wife, if they were married or not. I mean, that's a really lovely scene. She was a local actress and she was extraordinary. Like that's, that's exhilarating when, when that happens. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no, 
the only hard and fast rule is there's no hard and fast rule. <laughs> well, that's, that's one of the most important scenes in the film, I would argue, with Don Cheadle. And, um, I, you know, I, I find this really interesting, and I apologize if you've talked about this before, but I, I think this is such an interesting thing. The Peter Andrews thing still is amazing to me. And I know, I know that that's the name you use for cinematographer on your films. Um, in terms of that name, did you ever consider changing it ever? Did you, I know you stayed with it th- throughout your career, but could you, do you mind telling the story behind that? It's, such a, re- it's a really cool story, I think. Yeah, again, it, it, it turned out to be a, a, a development that, that was a solve um, that, that turned out to be better than the original ask. So the original ask was for the credit at the end of traffic to redirect it in photograph by. Oh, cool. The, the director's guild signed off on it and the cinematographer's guild signed off on it. The writer's guild said, you cannot have a credit between the director and the writer you're putting you're putting a cinematography credit essentially between the director and the writer we are not going to give you a waiver to do that wow okay i mean there's, that's that's their prerogative so given that i've that that i only like having my name appear once saying directed by like that's all i want um i thought Fine, I'll take a pseudonym and I'll use my father's first two names because uh, he's the reason I love movies. And it actually wow. makes me happy every time I see it because <laughs> of, the, in my mind, what the connection is. And then, you know, the Marianne Bernard sort of developed in a, in a similar way. And I decided, well, fair is fair. I've got to pay tribute to my mom. Um, so it's it's. It, it turned out accidentally uh, to to be the way that it should be, even though that's not initially what I wanted. But I do. It does make me crazy to see movies where the director's name's on there like six times. Like it just makes me crazy. <laughs> uh, Mr. Soderberg, whenever you have a big ensemble piece like this, there are inevitably going to be. Uh, really big stars who just because of the story don't share any screen time together. I'm sort of curious, are there two actors in this film that just don't have a moment together that you would have just really liked to have seen go toe to toe and, and see what a scene like, what it would be like with the two of them? Well, you know, the answer is yeah, in the sense that it's such a fascinating gallery of characters and the, and the, and the cast is so distinctive. Um, it is fun to think about Frankie Shaw and Don Cheadle in a scene together. It's really fun to think about, you know, Julia Fox and Noah Jupe in the same room. Like, what does that look like? Um, so it's it's the the it is fun to think about, uh, you know, an exploded view of this universe where you can kind of recombine characters. But you know, you have to. You know, you can't you can't distort the thing by trying to service some idea that doesn't, you know, cater to what the thing is. And so there's so, never been a moment once once you've cast the roles where you thought like, oh, like I really got to write a scene where these two characters meet each other because I really want to put person A and person B in the same frame. Not I don't recall that ever happening. Um Usually, usually it's kind of happening even before all that, where where you 
you're you're responding conceptually to the idea of a certain pairing or a certain group. But I've never I've never retroactively come back and said, as far as I can remember, uh, oh, let's jam. Let's let's put these two people together, because honestly, if you've constructed your story properly and you try to do that, you're going to fuck it up. Hmm. Sean, do you care if I jump in? For one, one uh, more thing, do you want to go? Well, no, go, 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 go. All right, well, I, I just wanted to bring this up real fast because Sex, Lies, and Videotape was a big movie for me growing up. I, I just wanted to know your memories of that experience and kind of what that movie gave you moving forward in your career, like what you look back on with that film, and then I'll let Sean end it. Well, it's... it's in, 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 look, in looking back on it, you know, it the fact that it it ended up uh performing the way it performed and and was liked to have that be my first film was such an incredible lottery ticket win um it it just made everything possible um, it, 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 it immediately, for whatever reason, and I think most of it is timing, um, it, it immediately just set me up um, with, with opportunities. And that's all I ever wanted. I just wanted opportunities. Um, the fact that it was financed by a home video company and therefore was never in our minds um, in was never was never going to have the uh, the option or the ability to 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 be released theatrically and then to have some sort of real you know economic life theatrically we assumed since those rights were not available since those the home video rights were not available that nobody would just want to take the theatrical rights um so the fact that that all played out the way it did was a shock and, and a happy one. Um, and it really, it, it really set me on a path that um, very few first time filmmakers have laid out in front of them, especially now. I'm so glad I came up when I came up. Um, it was harder to get money to make something then, it was harder to get something made, but if you got it made, um, chances are you could get somebody to see it and buy it. Now it's the opposite. Now it's really easy to make something and it's really hard to get somebody to buy it and see it. Um, so I, I feel, I feel I was very lucky in that regard. And then, you know, I had this period between sex lies and out of sight where I'm trying to figure out what kind of filmmaker I am. And, and that was, you know, I was off in the wilderness a bit and I think, you know, if you talk to George, he would he would agree that we both were viewed at the point we were making out of sight as having not fulfilled our potential. Wow. That people thought we had potential, but that we had not delivered. Mm -hmm. And that's why that project was so important for the two of us creatively that that we were both we both knew Man, if this if we don't pull this off, we are in real trouble. And and yet to the, go to work and forget that and just 
just do it the way that you want to do it and and pretend you're I'm I pretended when I showed up on set that I was on, you know, Schizopolis, that I could do whatever I wanted. Um, I would go back to the hotel room at night and go, shit, I hope this works. But, <laughs> um, you know, that was that was a watershed, you know, for me, that 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 period. And then that film, um, in some ways, that was especially in terms of how the business, I think, uh, considered me. Uh, Out of Sight was almost like a second first film. Oh, cool. Well, Mr. Soderbergh, I can't uh, imagine how powerful it must be for upcoming filmmakers who, who might be listening to the show to hear, you know, that there was ever a time where you or Mr. Clooney felt that you hadn't reached your potential. I'm sure, uh, look at where you guys are now. Um, we can't thank you enough for your time here. This was an incredible interview for us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, Oh, yeah. We, no, I'm sorry. It's, it's not even longer, but... Uh, um, I'm just I'm so happy you responded to what we put in, you know, because that was the point is, especially for people like yourselves who, who, you know, your 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 take on movie is is a little deeper than just a typical uh, audience members. And it's nice when somebody appreciates like all the stuff that flies right over the head of a normal viewer. And let me be clear, it should like that's that's totally, you know, um, but when you have real movie people say, because for, for me, this is like this is a this a movie movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, like, it it's not a film. It's a movie. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, but I wanted it to, to have all these these, you know, fun cinematic aspects as well. Absolutely. Well, thank and you. And a great score. Oh, oh, great. David oh, Holmes' oh, score. Oh, oh, oh it's such a good score. score. Yeah, great yeah, yeah. score. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. We, I think all three of us have always wanted to speak with you, so we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to, to make it happen. This is a dream come true, rather, for all three of us. Yes. Continued success. Yeah. Let's do it again. Needless to say, we have to thank Warner Brothers for thinking of us um, when a time slot opened up on Mr. Soderbergh's schedule. And trusting us. Yeah, exactly. To know that we're the type of podcast that is going to ask him the questions that he wants to hear. It was just so amazing to talk film with him. It's, it almost it was that sort of breakdown of a wall that we have with um, Quentin at the time where you kind of stopped talking about his movie in particular, but just branched out into other mm-hmm. topics. And I love the way we got through it through the industry. And he's been around for so long and his body of work is so incredible that, um, yeah, I, I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. I, I yeah, don't know about I, you. I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I don't know about you, but just like hearing him talk about how little plan he has when he hits the set with his actors, yeah. that that's the moment that he uses to figure out how he's going to shoot. Thinking about sometimes how complicated his moments are. I recently rewatched Traffic. I've seen Ocean's Eleven a million times. I've seen Out of Sight a million times. Those are oftentimes very complicated scenes. And thinking about the fact that he doesn't storyboard that he sits there and makes everyone wait for him while he looks at a set and figures yeah. out in that moment how he's going to shoot and no one's allowed to leave. Like that's that, that, that as someone who over, like whenever I have a shoot uh, here at my local TV station, someone who over plans how I'm going to do it. The idea of just showing up and figuring out in that moment, but having the pressure of a multi-million dollar studio behind you, like tapping their foot is just anxiety inducing. Like it's yeah. just terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also want to say, like, you know, I hope people that listen to that interview go back and kind of find some of his older work if you haven't seen it. Like, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, 
was a film that I like I saw in high school that just, you know, it obviously as in the interview, if you hear it, he considers uh, Sex, Lies and Videotape and Out of Sight two of his first movies he made because of kind of where Out of Sight was in his career and kind of where he was as a filmmaker and George Clooney as well at that point. Um, I just genuinely found his answers to be incredibly humbling in terms of the way he sees his his filmography, but also at the same time, his 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 excitement for the use of the lenses in this film, it, he's always trying something different, right? I mean, I mean, this is the guy who shot a movie on an iPhone, right? At one point, so mm-hmm. you're talking about you're talking about somebody who's always innovating, always trying to figure out ways for immersive uh, uh, storytelling for his audiences, and yeah, I mean, just the history of his filmography growing up like traffic i rewatched a couple months ago and you just think about and he said in the interview that was easier to make than the oceans film that's crazy that's crazy what a crazy quote that was yeah so it was it was an incredible um experience to be able to talk to steven soderbergh i mean as somebody who's he he is a massive massive influence on my love of cinema uh just easily no question and i think traffic was a big one for me and i think just being able to tell him that was was awesome so and someone asked i think jokingly and i kind of do wish we brought it up was the oscar telecast and his work on the oscar telecast this past just to get his opinion i would have liked to have heard like in hindsight how he thought it went you know not to be rude or in any kind of way but like i don't know how much he talked about really the pressure that goes into mounting that well i would have talked to him about the freaking wonder that he had regina king do good lord That was incredible. So. That was awesome. But that was yeah. the only time that I sort of felt like, oh, Soderbergh's doing this. Yeah. Like beyond yes. that, it just felt like an Oscar telecast. Yeah. And then it's the trappings of the show, and you're kind of yeah. stuck there. So yeah. Um, <laughs> he also said he'd be he'd be back. So he'd be uh, back, and you we know, shall see. You know, when people say that, when people say that, sometimes they mean it. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Sometimes they mean it. All right, from one genius steven to another genius steven um steven spielberg's amblin partners uh steven spielberg's amblin is going to partner with netflix and uh they are guaranteeing according to variety or i'm sorry expected to produce at least two films a year for netflix for an unspecified 
number of years. Now, you know, the headline is Steven Spielberg goes to Netflix, but it's not like he's directing films that are going there. Right. I think Spielberg would be one of the, the he and Nolan uh, strike me as, well, of course, as he went, uh, as, as some of the people who are going to cling to, you know, film and theatrical as long as physically possible. But the Amblin brand, I find to be pretty interesting because it comes up a lot when we interview people on this show, people who are, you know, our age or grew up on the films that we kind of love and Amblin meant a lot to them. Um, it's interesting that we were talking about Pixar and Luca and the fact that Pixar, you know, yes, they're still capable of a soul, but when they deliver a Luca or a good dinosaur, it, it's not as shocking anymore, right? Like it's not, that that brand is not grade A, you know, uh, flawless the way that it was anymore. Now they're just a, a animation studio and they're a, a, a damn good one, you know, for the most part. Um, but is Amblin that kind of brand? You know, is Amblin going to be the type of thing that lures people over? Um, that, that people want to check out the new thing. If it's not a Spielberg or Joe Dante type Amblin. I mean, outside of like the film circle, I'd argue that the average person doesn't know what Amblin doesn't is. Doesn't know what it is. I mean, I honestly, think the, the average person knows yeah. the logo. Okay. Yeah. Is it E.T.? Mm-hmm. E. The E.T. With the, with the moon, yeah. So what do you guys think of this deal? What do you, Kevin, what do you think about the fact that Amblin is, uh, is going to Netflix? I mean, we, we've had this discussion a million times in the show. I, I, in terms of Netflix... I am all for the reach it gives people. Um, I definitely find it interesting that he's not directing these films. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's obviously a partnership with, you know, with Netflix and Amblin. So maybe we'll just we're going to get Amblin type of content. And I'm actually totally cool with that. Will I run to my screen to watch an Amblin product? I mean, knowing Spielberg's behind it. Now, that name Spielberg has been put on a lot of movies. Transformers sure. 2 has Spielberg's <laughs> name on it as an executive yeah, producer. Yeah. So, it, it, yeah. Go ahead, Gabe. Uh, just a point to clarify. Uh, nothing's come out to say that he's absolutely never going to direct one sure. of these. Yeah. They just have said they're producing at least two a year. And so I've seen a lot of people kind of the way they're writing it is like, he could. <laughs> like they're, they're like, wouldn't that be cool? And um, you know what? So and he listen, could. but the, the minute Scorsese jumped... I mean, I I would almost say no one probably Nolan seems to me the only one who would never, in my well, opinion. And we've discussed it before that all they care about is giving to tell the story that they want to tell. And if mm-hmm. Netflix is willing to pay them the amount of money they need, yeah, to to tell the story the way they want to tell it, they can probably negotiate the theatrical release, you know, either with Netflix to to get one or internally in order to to create what they want to create. Like I I think it's a pretty small barrier when we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that they need for some of these visions. Do you guys think, uh, because there was that, that controversy, I don't know, a year or two, how I, the pandemic has thrown off time for me. So like 50 years ago, there was a yeah. controversy with Steven Spielberg and, and whether he thought Netflix should be in consideration for Oscars. Now, whether or not he's directing stuff, if he's producing films for Netflix, then in theory, his name would be slapped on a Best Picture nomination were a film to be nominated for Best Picture. Do you think... If Amblin turns in a good enough film where it starts getting Oscar buzz and he's a producer on it, his opinions about whether or not Netflix should be considered for the Academy Awards might shift. He did. He did come out and say after that and whether that was like to save face or whatever, because that all it, that kind of blew up into where it became its own yeah. thing. Um, but he did come out and say, I'm not concerned. I don't I'm not trying to bar Netflix from winning because they're Netflix. I want people to to to, to get their stories however they can. But the the idea was the day and date release of trying sure. to keep day and date films from being yeah. Oscar 
contenders. Which has changed a lot. I mean, now, obviously, it's a, it's a case-by-case basis, and it seems to be a filmmaker-by-filmmaker yeah. basis but with, if he's, with the Irishman if, and Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, but him that, as a producer, I mean... Whatever, the, the dead, Army of the Dead, Jesus. Army of the Dead, yeah. But yeah. but him as a producer, I mean, that's something that he could very... He's Steven Spielberg. Yeah. He can very easily demand, yeah, yeah. we're going to make you two movies a year, give and us I'm sure that I'm sure that's part of the con- I'm sure that's part of the contract. I'm sure that's already been decided. If it hasn't already, I, yeah, right, I, yeah. I can't imagine that he would sit down to the table and, and, and leave that up in the air. Also, things have changed a lot, like in a short amount of time, you yeah. know? And... Not that I'm worried about the theatrical experience. You know, I think the theatrical experience is always going to be there. But people are not coming back as quickly as, as the studios probably hoped that they would. This will and be a telling Place, weekend. This F9? Mm-hmm. What do you think is a good opening weekend for F9? Like, what's a good opening weekend that says, like, people are coming back? 70? Well, first of That's all, the movie's right. already been out for in, uh, uh, internationally. It's already made $300 million, essentially, around mm. that. Uh, now coming to the U.S., you know, if you look, all theaters aren't open yet, right? I, I know that every single theater isn't open yet, from what I understand. I'm not unless sure unless I'm wrong. But in a, in a world where a quiet place can open to almost sixty, Fast Nine should open to at least seventy. It should. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I was just at the theater for my screening, and our sign up said um, masks are optional. That was the first mm-hmm. time I'd seen a masks are optional in the theater. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like, things are evolving. Yeah. And if this movie can can break, like, 90, that's a win. Like, that's sure. a huge... That'd be a huge win. So I hope that it has an impact like that. Uh, we're going to get to F9 a little bit later in the show. Uh, let's get to the Suicide Squad trailer. The trailer itself was fantastic. I don't understand what Warner Brothers was doing with the rollout. The rollout was really odd. They made it an ad uh, on the front of, like, random YouTube uh, videos so you had to be watching a video and then you would get a tease like hey the surprise suicide squad trailer is here um but now it's finally out people can check it out i think it's going to be it feels like even more amplified than um james Gunn's guardians like i'm not comparing it to the original suicide squad at all david Ayer was trying to make a different movie i think gunn is taking the the sort of lunacy that he brought to the guardians franchise but he has a lot more characters to deal with and a lot of really weird characters like king shark is a very strange yes. creature yes. uh polka dot man is is very original how, how and, familiar are you with these characters sean not really i mean harley obviously yeah. Um, and Rick Flagg is a pretty important character. But the Suicide Squad is one of those deals that they just kept bringing new characters in and allowed Gunn to just sort of go through the deep bench of unusual characters because he liked, like, Weasel. Like, Sean Gunn is playing an actual Weasel that, according to the trailer, has killed 27 children. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> strap in. And, Kev, what did you think of the trailer? Out there, Sean Gunn also played the physical uh, actions of Rocket, which is really yeah. cool. Sean Gunn's awesome. Um, yeah. I thought the trailer was fine. Um, I listen, I'm all in for an R rated suicide squad film. Um, but I don't think anything in this trailer sold me more than I already kind of was. I, I was already kind of in, I love James Gunn, love the R rating, love that. It seems like a guardians type of film with an R rating slapped onto it. It's going to be raunchy. It's going to be brutal. Um, I love the opening scene of the trailer with Idris and, um, Viola Davis with yeah. uh, but uh, Who to put me that was Superman the best part in the ICU. I thought that was an interesting little throwaway line. That's badass. Yeah, and it was it's, it's a really it, it, it's a good trailer. I, I wouldn't call it a phenomenal trailer. I would actually argue that the original Suicide Squad trailers were better than these Suicide Squad trailers. And 
here's what I'm saying. Obviously, the original Suicide didn't turn out <laughs> the way we all wanted it to, but those were some of the best trailers I've ever seen. Those trailers for that for David Ayer's Suicide Squad were incredibly well cut together. The music was amazing. Uh, 21 Pilots, all those songs, the soundtrack for that movie was amazing. The movie itself wasn't great in the third act, obviously. Um, but I do think that those trailers that were cut for that film are better than these. I'm not sure if you guys heard David Ayer say this. I was paying very close attention because of the Snyder Cut stuff. David Ayer said that Deadpool ruined Suicide Squad because right. when Deadpool dropped, uh, the studio saw that it was an R-rated, you know, violent, but incredibly funny superhero movie. And they made him take his footage and try to make it more like Deadpool which mm. is just, you couldn't do with the footage that he shot. So It I was my understanding, though, as well, that critic and fan reaction to the super heavy tone of Batman vs. Superman also kind of skewed what yeah. the studio wanted out of it. I think that did scare Warner Brothers a little bit away from the darker serious, and I think David Ayer's version was going to be yeah. darker serious. You know, I think that he was going for a, a sort of well, character study, you know, that you could do in this, but... Suicide okay. Squad, Air's Suicide Squad to me is like a Frankenstein um, mm -hmm. movie. That's, a great, like that's there, a great way to put it. There's genuinely some really good stuff in there. And it, what, mm -hmm. what, what really bothered me about that situation is Air is a great filmmaker. And I think that he's done some phenomenal work. One of my favorite movies he ever did was End of Watch. I mean, the guy is an incredible storyteller. Uh, I, 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 I genuinely believe that he went in to try and make the best movie he could. And as you said, with your uh, Deadpool element and Jake's element about Batman v Superman, studio got in there and, and, mm -hmm. and it just got jumbled up into a Frankenstein kind of mess whereas, as to what we saw. But I do think that Air doesn't deserve the 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 negativity he received for that film. I, I but think it, that but don't you so feel like reaction is that like pretty forgiving of him? I feel like the, the general idea is that most people understand it's not his fault. But do but do now film fans know that? Do general audiences I think understand? Film fans are the only Ayer... ones that care. I think the average moviegoer has moved on. You know what? I actually think the average moviegoer still likes the movie for what it is. Don't keep you know? going. I mean, yeah, didn't it make like a billion? No, close to no, like, didn't it do very well? But I mean, I will say though, here's my only thing about James Gunn's movie, um, and this is something. This is a thought that came across my mind as I was watching the trailer. I don't think that we I think we are past shocking R-rated content now. Yeah. So to a point where like I'm watching the trailer going, all right, I feel like I've seen the over the top raunchy R-rated action comedy done so much that it's not shocking anymore. Had James Gunn's Suicide Squad come out like five years ago. Yeah. When it wasn't like extremely like normal to see an R-rated superhero film of this nature, I think it would have been more shocking. I haven't seen his movie yet, obviously, but there was something as I watched that trailer when I said to myself, I feel like I've already been down this path. I feel like mm -hmm. nothing here is truly shocking me. Um, so I don't, again, this is a trailer. And again, going back to the first Suicide Squad movie, that trailer made me believe it was going to be one of the best superhero movies ever made. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and it wasn't. So maybe James Gunn is withholding some of the best content. I mean, I, I want to get y'all's opinions. Did you, did you think the trailer was awesome or just good? Um, I thought it was... It's I thought good. it was good, but it's the third trailer. It didn't have a, a big scene aside yes. from King Shark being thrown by Starro, you know. That was the, it. The, yeah. The, the, the sea fish. But, but this is but more like, how much more do you want to see of this movie, it's, right? It's, close. it's, it's not yeah, that I want to see more. Right, but that's I, not, I, 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 why release the trailer then? Yeah, that's well, a good question. 
I asked it didn't that about, do anything for I me. I asked that about trailer number one, but like, this is a you got to think about the scale of the audience they're trying to attract. I get it. There are some but people that, trailer, that are just that are average viewers that are they're going to see this. There long might trailer. not be. There might not be another big. Ta-da! To show, you know, there yeah, might not. Right. But, but but I feel like at this How point they're they trying to us? show more. Like, because there's so many characters that yeah. they need to that we have no idea who they are that they need to make us familiar with. I felt like the last trailer was a little bit more spectacle, and this is more a little bit of like hear who they or who these guys are. And look mm-hmm. how weird and quirky. And isn't it going to be cool when you put them all in a room together and shake them up? Um, but it's all—it's one of those things where I feel like I know it did nothing in these trailers has felt fresh to me. If that makes sense, it's—it's it's all felt like I—I I know the world. I know, and again, I'm a huge James Gunn guy. Love Slither, Guardians, everything he's done. One of the great, one of my favorite filmmakers working today, and I love seeing from the horribly beautiful mind of James Gunn. Yeah, really cool seeing that splashed across the I screen. I love in the that text. DC put a Marvel movie in their trailer. Yeah, Guardians I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and it, well, yeah. that's the selling point, right? Because the yeah. average person looks at that and goes, yeah. "Oh, I love Guardians." Oh, this is kind of cool, isn't it? Kind of, yeah. this is like a weird, yeah. like this is like a weird Guardians. I think people are going to make right. the connection and think, "Oh, well, he knows how to handle." I will say, I do think this is from from the clips that I've seen, the best usage of of whatever it is that John Cena is able to do as an actor. Cena, Cena's funny in that one like moment. Like, he's very dry. But they gave him a delivery. TV show after he did this, right? So we got to assume yeah. it's, he yeah. nailed it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, 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 listen, Cena, uh, ever since I saw him in Trainwreck. Oh, I, I just, God. I, he's, I, yes, yes, His performance right. in Trainwreck is so good. You know who's also great in Trainwreck is, is LeBron, LeBron James. James. That yes. movie had great performances. Okay. Um, but Cena really kind of showed his comedic chops in Trainwreck. And I think, obviously, Gunn is tapping into that um, with the starfish line in the trailer, which is really funny. Yes. That made me, it, made, it made me think back to a, a, an album. Oh, this is, this is a stupid, but in high school, when Limp Biscuit put out the album, uh, chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water, yeah. I didn't know what starfish was. And I had to like ask my parents, I'm like, what does this mean? And it, that's the answer that I was given. And then to have Cena then reference that joke. Wait, in your the parents trailer, just casually, well, I think well, I like, asked yeah, sit somebody. Down, sit down, Kevin. It's like an adult. Com- <laughs> like what? It, like why is it called starfish? What does that mean? And I realized like, my yeah. friends were like, Kevin, that means a yeah. butt. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> it was just really, really funny. Anyway, um, biscuit. Before we move on to this week's this week in movies, we're splitting up a conversation here a little bit, which I don't like to do. But you guys made an interesting point about F9's box office. Um, so to round that off, because we left that on a bit of a question. Fate of the Furious opened up in 4,300 theaters. Okay. The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard this past weekend was in, according to IMDb, uh, was in 3,300 theaters, which is the mm. same amount of theaters the original uh, Hitman's Bodyguard was was in. So if that's any sort of indicator, if that's the maximum amount of theaters or that they just hit the same threshold, yeah. I don't necessarily know. But mm. if it's jumping this high, we're pretty. it feels like we're pretty close. So I would say giving giving uh f9 the expectation of a of a standard normal real world theatrical release is probably fair okay yeah Yeah, i I saw i saw an estimate of 50 50 to 70 million is what i saw because i would imagine that i feel like anything that's not open i imagine is trying to is planning to be open by this date it feels that way how much money it's making one of the other questions you have to bring up though is without the rock so like one of the things i found really interesting is Everybody has, has asked me, is The Rock in this one? And like, yeah. I have to explain, no, he's not. And I think, obviously, we all know that. I mean, I listen, Vin Diesel's the face of the franchise, but when The Rock entered into Fast Five, 
it, it really upped the ante of the of, of the um, of the franchise. So yeah. I think a lot of people Hobbs and Shaw did relatively well. But if now I will say this, look at the number of how much Fate of the Furious made. And then look at how much Hobbs and Shaw made. Mm-hmm. There, you know, it, 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 there's a it's a gigantic drop in 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 terms of money. Um, so I, I I wonder if maybe the Rock part of it isn't as big of a deal. But I, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I wonder if people are going to see it because of the, he's not we're in. Gonna, I don't know. We're going to find out. All right. So let's get to this weekend movies where we're going to discuss F nine. But first, we got to get to the Ice Road. Who's seen the Ice Road? Liam Neeson. Jake, take it yep. away. Kevin, you saw it too. All right. I saw it Jake, too. Kevin, I'm, Jake, I'm curious to. Here's what I'll tell you. The first half of this movie, I don't want to go as far as saying that like I really liked it, but there's a part of me that was like, okay, like I'm into yeah. it. It's this idea that there was uh, this cave in, uh, these miners are stuck in a cave, and they need to get these big drills or something to these miners, and the only way to get there, get these these drills to the miners as quickly as they need to, is to drive these trucks over what is referred to as an ice road, which if you don't watch Ice Road Truckers, it's basically like a level of ice over a river. The issue being, this is happening in April, which is normally when you don't drive these trucks, like the ice is starting to break, but like maybe it'll work or maybe it won't, you know, so naturally they, you know. So yeah, it's a a really good hook. So like, that's kind of what I thought the movie was gonna be, it's just them trying to, and you watching like, you know, and biting your nails as like the ice starts to crack and there are these really cool shots uh, they're CGI, but they're still cool shots of like from under the ice, like in the water, mm-hmm. and you watch like the truck drive over you. And for the first half, I was like, okay, like, is, is it another silly like Liam Neeson action movie? Yes, but like I'm kind of digging this world. I don't watch Ice Road Truckers, so it was a lot of it was very new to me, and I was kind of into it. And then it takes this turn, and I don't want to ruin it, but it ends up involving corporate conspiracy. <laughs> and then at that point, it just turns into what you feared it was going to be when you saw the post. Just this ridiculous, insane, over-the-top, okay, this is just stupid. I can't fault F9 if I'm not going to fault Ice Road kind of thing. Okay. Um, and I, it actually kind of bummed me out because I really thought that they had me for the first half of the movie. Kevin, what did you think? Yeah, it's one of those things where like I lear- I, I liked learning about that aspect. Yeah. It's a really fascinating uh, uh, way of life. The leading One of the leading actresses in the film, her brother's like a, a, an ice road trucker um, or something. Um, and and, and like, to just know that people are out there doing that job for real mm-hmm. is kind of crazy. And, and uh, to me, movies are amazing because you can learn about things that you may not know or, or learn about different elements of life. And I'm not saying I go, I go to the ice road to learn, <laughs> to learn about life, but I, but I definitely learned something that I didn't know prior. So like, like you said, Jake, I was kind of hooked and then it just gets ridiculous. I mean, yeah. it's one of those weird things where like, they, but did you they, dig the first half? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I dug the first half and I dug they you know, the, the, the effects are really well done. I mean, it's a Netflix yeah. film. It's high budget. It, it, it looks and feels big. Yeah. Um, but there was some pretty weird CGI yeah. moments uh, that I thought were kind of. There is a, a death scene that is borderline brutal where someone's leg gets trapped on a wire as he's being pulled into a hole in the ice. And like I was sitting there, what kind of squirming is like it was one of the most like one of the most uncomfortable deaths just because you know the inevitability of what's happening and what's coming it was that was still in the half that i liked okay uh it's on netflix um and then hulu is getting something called false positive i don't know what false positive is anyone know false positive uh i I saw it it is um yeah it is um it really really wants to be 2021's rosemary's baby um, oh. to the, I, so much so that there's a lead character named Adrian. 
which if you're unfamiliar was the name of of rosemary's baby rosemary's baby was named adrian um here's what i'll say is that like i find it interesting that they're so concerned about making sure that like we don't reveal anything about the plot when i watched the trailer and was like oh like that's gonna happen like this this person's the bad guy and they're like don't say anything i'm like if you never like, look at the trailer it's right yeah, there yeah it's 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 an a24 film that was sold to hulu um hey look if you're if you're listening to this podcast you probably know what a24 films tend to imply like a very mm-hmm. unique artsy kind of and it felt like it really wanted to be that but it felt like if the lifetime channel were producing an a24 film oh like it really wants to be like for the most part it's a lifetime movie and then in like the last five minutes like Who's it's it? like Pierce Brosnan, Pierce Brosnan and Justin Thoreau yeah. um, and uh, a, a comedian and who I'm not familiar with her work, but she's taking a dramatic work here and I'm not super familiar with with who with her work. But OK, um, but um, Sophia Bush is in it as well. It's just, you know, I, 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 I can see why a 24 sold it off is okay. I guess what I would say. Kevin, did you watch? I, I did not see it. No, you're not going to just good. All right. Well, that's on Hulu. False positive. You can check it out. And let's get to the big title this week. OK, this one has been causing a lot of controversy in the uh, in the real blend text thread for for weeks, if not months right now, um, because F9 is coming to theaters and the Fast and Furious franchise um, is to Kevin what Marvel is to me. We just love the franchise. We love yeah. the characters. We love the world. Um I would almost say don't trust my opinion on a Marvel movie because I'm I'm largely biased and I'm going to kind of really love what they put out. Um, so I want Kevin to start first with um, his take on F9 because it's the opposite of Jake's. And then I went today and I was going to be uh, the, the tiebreaker. Ooh, I'm but also, so curious to hear what you think, Sean. But Wait, also Gabe I like to pull in. Too, so yeah, we I want yeah. to pull in Gabe because Gabe has the total. The, he is way more <laughs> on the opposite end of the spectrum of Fast and Furious. Yes. Uh, as Kevin is because as Gabe will tell you repeatedly, he liked the early ones, but sure. hates when it went off the rails into uh, into. I don't know, Gabe, what is it? What is it now? What is it not like? What you want me to define the franchise as it is now, or what are my thoughts on it? In, in a short, in like a, in like a, in like a short couple of sentences. Yeah. So, so my issue, the, the where the where the franchise lost me was it's stopped. It's always been kind of a little ridiculous. The drama's been a little melodramatic. The acting has always been, uh, you know, it's not an, it's never been an Oscar film kind of thing. Um, and I loved it back in the day, but I loved it because it was about cars. It was about real cars. It was about real cars going real fast. And it was about how these group of people interacted with their life, which surrounds cars as being car people. Um, and of course, also this like added danger of them being criminals, which they're all criminals because they're street racing at night. And that was plenty of stakes for me. And then now they're in space. The stakes have gotten much higher. In the so fast the way I, so so and some people love, so again, <laughs> this is where I left for me. But Kevin and plenty of people. Um, continued with the franchise, like that they've followed those stakes. For me, what they've done and what they what they've been doing for a long time is, if you're a fan of Key and Peele, if you've seen Key and Peele, sure, yeah, they're sort of their improv, they're not their improv, their sketch comedy mathematics is we'll have a bit, we'll have like a premise, we'll have like a joke, and then the sketch of it is we are going to take the next elevation of that, and the next elevation of that, and the next elevation of that. 
And in one skit where they're trying to hide calling their significant other a bitch, they're like trying to whisper. Great, they're trying to, great. They're sketch. trying to hide yeah. it. <laughs> they go so as the bit continues until they quite literally are in space. Right. Um, it reminds that... me of you. Have you seen that the Key and Peel sketch about the guy that comes in and fixes Gremlins 2? Yes. This this feels like the guy that that guy walked yeah. in a room for Fast and Furious. Yes. So sorry. I was trying to be I was trying to be brief. That is my that's where I left the franchises when they were okay. like, let's just increase the stakes and stop uh, and not increase the sort of what was what I found interesting. Which, which is why, ironically, at this point, bring in what's on your shirt. At this point, freaking bring in dinosaurs. Do it. Yeah, true. Like, I, like at this point, shirt. just do it. But I want Gabe to was trying to be brief, and then he pulled pulled a me. Go ahead, Kevin. Go ahead, Kevin. Kevin. Take it away. As the as the flag waver of the franchise, uh, tell us what you love about. And it. And I joke. I will say because because the the audience has been privy to this for uh, several weeks now. I play up my my distaste <laughs> for the. Fast franchise because Kevin loves it so much yeah. and we're playful like that. But I love that he loves it and there's nothing yeah, wrong with loving it. We're just being friends. Yes. We love each other. And, it's, and if it's you fun. love it at home, I'm glad you do. Yes. It's yeah. fun. You can have I, a lot of fun. I feel there's no difference in what this franchise has become than what the Mission Impossible franchise has become. I, I feel like every movie ups the craziness. They're doing insane things. We're following the same characters. To me, the Mission films and the Fast films are in the same boat. Um, I don't, I think they've gotten more ridiculous as time has gone on. And whether you buy into the world or not, if you can buy Tom Cruise being blown back into a car or hanging out beside of an airplane or possibly going to space or whatever they're doing in the next mission films, <laughs> for some reason, like those films aren't, aren't put down as much as fast. And I, and I, I find that to be interesting. Um, I, I listen, I, I'm not, I think Macquarie and what he's done with the mission films is, is brilliant. And I love those movies, but I think it, I also love the fast movies. And I think if you buy into the world, you can, you can have a good time with it. Um, in terms of the cars that, that Gabe mentions, um, the cars are still within the franchise. I mean, there are some incredible cars in this new movie. Dominic Toretto's car is iconic. The Charger. Um, this time around, Cena has a, a Mustang. The cars are characters. Uh, I I argue. I think they're they're an extension of the characters. Um, I love this franchise, and I'm not saying these films are perfect. There are lines in this new Fast and Furious film that are not good. Don't get me wrong. Um, but at the same time. I love living in the world. I love Dominic Toretto. I love Jordana Brewster's Mia Toretto. I love Han returning. I, I just love the way they explain it all. Um, and I think that if you think about nine films in a franchise, including Hobbs and Shaw, well, I guess would make it a 10, you're dealing with so many characters and they, and they found a way to intersect it and make it work. Like, I believe Han's return. I believe why characters leave and come back. I believe... Brian's character staying home with the kids so Mia can go out and help her family. So you guys laugh at me, but I actually think that was a pretty profound thing they did. Um, having Brian stay home with the kids is a statement about where we are as a culture now. We, we need to accept it more that the father can stay home and the, and the wife can go out and do sure. the work. I sure, think sure, that sure. that's what me that message was. And at the end of the day... When you're dealing with an action film to have a profound statement like that, I mean, again, we're dealing with the fact that Paul Walker's not here, right? Mm -hmm. How do you There's explain Brian? There's a practicality Brian? to it, yeah. Right. And I, I agree. So I wanted to jump in to say I agree that I I like that choice to, to not, like, yeah. kill him off, which would have been yeah. sort of poor taste given the the yes. real world. Um, yes. I, I, I thought that was a really good creative choice, and I like that he's still around, which is cool. Like, I like yeah. that they mention him like that, like he's just off camera. I just feel like it's cool. Like, uh, when I watched that film, Lauren looked at me 
and said, that's really profound that they let that, that the character of Mia, because these, these movies have kind of been ahead of their time in terms of what they've said about society and the world, I, I believe. And in terms of like, you know, these films, incredible diversity in the cast. I mean, they, 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 they've always been kind of ahead of the game, I think, in the fast films. But in terms of the, the Mia character and her going out and doing the action, I love that. And I think that should be no, more normalized in cinema. Um, and so to me, that was really cool. So my point being is that they found a way to make everything work no matter what happened behind the scenes. Um, you know, and a lot has happened behind the scenes with these, with these actors and these characters. Um, Action-wise, I love the action because I love the characters. So to me, as, as crazy as the action gets, I love being in an action moment with Dominic Toretto. So I don't care if it's insane or characters are going to space or whatever. If I'm with the character and, I, and, I, and I'm emotionally invested in that character and what the journey is, it makes the action more enhanced for me. Um, also, Justin Lin. That dude is one of the best action directors working today. There is action in this film that is so practical. I mean, there's a magnet sequence, right? Where the cars are being pulled and pushed out via a magnet. They were launching cars at that at cars. There's CGI clearly, but they really did a good job making you feel like you were actually there. Um, I thought John Cena did a great job as Jacob, uh, as Jacob Toretto. I loved that chemistry. I loved going back to the 1989, 35 millimeter, telling the story. Because if you watch the first Fast and Furious film, Vin Diesel's character explains he went to prison and all these years later, 20 years later to learn the story behind that. And I'm sure they wrote that in as the years went on, but the way they found that was really cool. I thought that was really cool to see his father realized and see what happened and why he went to prison and kind of what happened to him later on. So I love Helen Mirren. Her appearance was great. I mean, there's just so many fun things about this film. I found it to be just exhilarating, massive smile on my face, incredible action, is it a perfect movie? No. There's some bad lines. Yes. But I'm all in on the soap opera drama, man. I'm all in on the family stuff. I dig it. It's fun for me. I'll watch 10 more of these. But I also understand why people don't like them. I get it. And it's fine. But for me, this is a fun time at the movies. Okay. Jake, I'm going to uh, assume you're going in the opposite direction. I, I am. Um, look, I, I, I do want to address the, the Mission Impossible comparison. Because my, my problem with that comparison is... While the ridiculousness, for lack of a better word, of Mission Impossible has also increased, so too has the level of direction, and the level of character development, mm-hmm. and the level of writing. And sure. the reason, and, my, and again, you and I are going to disagree on this, my issue with Fast 9, or the Fast series, is that while the ridiculousness has increased, the writing and every, everything else has taken a, no pun intended, a back seat and has dipped in quality. Uh, and so there's so there's the was, line. You're just trying to get on a cover somewhere, huh? Um, He's taking a back seat. Let me get a <laughs> well, yeah, Trust me, no one's gonna put me on the cover of Fast Night. <laughs> my my biggest issue, and and I was I was texting you guys and giving you a heads up in that like I'm not going to trash this because I did not hate this movie. Um uh, it did not make me angry in some of the ways that I've gone off on movies that, that Kevin and I in particular have disagreed on. And the the example everyone brings up being the Lion King. My biggest problem with this movie the biggest sin that it commits is that I just found it to be incredibly boring. I found every, like <laughs> I found no myself sense. I found myself ridiculously bored for two plus hours. Like I thought like aside from like the magnet bit, which wore off for me very like, okay, that's cool. Like, all right. Like I, I just like I the scenes where there wasn't like 
pulse-pounding action, like, blistering into my ears. <laughs> I wanted to claw my eyes out at what they considered to be uh, nuanced family development <laughs> between the characters. Oh, I loved it. Uh, their search for Han which in the middle of one of the largest cities on the planet somehow put them directly in front of the window where oh. they needed to, like... Oh, you're going to be sorry. persnickety about... Oh, dude, I, I can pick apart that, details that, of your favorite that... movies instantly. Instantly. That's... You just, since you don't like it, no, but, it, but it, that, it stands but that out. Sort of, that sort of scene is a microcosm example of, of, to me, what is the lazy writing that permeates through the Fast and Furious series. Again... It, it 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 they are what they are and 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 I acknowledge that like that that is the movie that they intended to make. It's not like they wanted to make something else and this is what came out from day one. That movie that I saw in the theaters was their goal. <laughs> I just find their goal to be incredibly boring, and I find it to be toothless and laughable. And uh, and I ha- I can genuinely say. I don't enjoy the series anymore. I, I am with Gabe in that, like, for me, Fast Five was the absolute perfect blend of... Gabe doesn't like Five. Okay, well, then I'll, I need to I'll, I need to rewatch Five. Yeah. It's been so long. I, yeah, so many people tell five, me it's good. Yeah, I will say Five, to me, is the perfect one of one foot in, in realism and one foot in the, like, let's have a little fun. And I remember, in, I remember even see, being at the junket for Five in Rio and all of us going... It's a little ridiculous that they were carrying the safe through the streets of Rio, and that's what we thought was ridiculous at the time. <laughs> and now at this point, they're driving what a Ford Pinto into space, and we're all going, "Fuck, I don't know." Like just, but yeah. you somehow believe Tom Cruise on the on the side of the Burj Khalifa uh, just jumping. Do you through know? Do you know fine? why? Because he, he did, did it. it. No, oh, and he did it with wires. And I'm not saying he didn't do it, but you're. I'm saying the the version we saw in the movie but, was okay, a but, safer version of what happened. They actually did the. Uh, uh, see, I, the this, but, that blows my mind. You're going to pick apart of uh, uh, little things about a movie that are like unbelievable when you have him hang off the side of an airplane while he's attached Kevin, to something. Yeah, I all, don't all think. I'm saying, come on, man. I don't think. Uh, if if you were to put the physics test to Mission Impossible versus fast like that you know i i while yes crews needed like some wires help to pull it off mm-hmm. it's not beyond the realm of physics that okay. he could jump from the window into the hotel room or right. it's not beyond the realm of physics that he could hold on to, you know um yes yeah but i think we're if we're talking about like a like a lapse of of believability or a leap of judgment we're talking about an inch for mission impossible and a mile for a fast quarter and mile? furious, quarter mile, about a quarter mile, quarter mile at a time. Listen, I think the mission films are fantastic. I, I want us to get movies. off the mission comparison because I don't think that does any justice to it's reviewing this film. Oh, I we're think just, it's a completely fair comparison. Well, no, 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 no Kevin. Because what is. we're doing now, hang on, let me interject. Because what we're doing now is now we're now we're criticizing the comparison. We're not criticizing the film. So I'd like us to get back okay. on Fast and Furious and not trying to say it's not a perfect comparison. Let's drop the comparison of the mission. Discuss the film. Uh, Sean, um, do you want to go? Yeah, let me go. Um, it's really hard, um, because there are good, there are good Fast and Furious movies. Like, I I think I want to judge all the Fast and Furious movies on the scale of the Fast and Furious, because that's the franchise that it sets out to be. And, and I agree with just about everybody that the strongest run of films is, um, five, six, and seven for what the franchise eventually wants to become, which for reasons I can't quite figure out is really heavy into spies. Like now they're spies. 
Um, and it's not like unusual for them to be spies because they've escalated down the down the path of like Mr. Nobody and you know uh but but like the thing about F9 is that it kind of commits to the bit but not 100% commits to the bit to this to this extent they have to go into the into some country that I'm unaware of um I think it's like um a South American country when they're going to track Mr. Nobody right it's, it's insignificant of where it is um but this would be a time when like at least if you were committing to the bit the characters would like suit up in some sort of camouflage or, you know, m- maybe like get ready for the, th- but, but Vin has his, his, overthinking his this. boots and he's got his, his white t-shirt and he's got a shotgun and he's, as he's running through the woods. That and sounds I thought, awesome. Sure. Now you might think that that's awesome. And a lot of other people will think it's awesome. But when I see that, I think, well, the filmmaker isn't concerned with, they're not concerned with details. They're not, they just know that you're going to go along for the ride for the most part. Um, and you're going to ride it out and then you'll judge it to say whether it's a good Fast and Furious or it isn't. I don't think that it's a good Fast and Furious movie in particular um, because I just don't even think that it's really well executed. Um, I, I'm kind of with Jake in that like it's it's so much action right from the get-go that I was like begging for some story, right? Like just something to latch on to. Wait, the opening scene is all story. What are you talking about? There's no action in the first scene, in the first scene. What's the opening scene? The opening scene is 1989 on the racetrack. But it's a, it's like a souped-up race. It's a big time. Well, there's one like, like but, but I'm saying the movie opens with story. Yeah. Well, flashback kind of thing. But okay. I guess it's establishing the brothers. Okay. Um, I just don't think it's well executed. And I'm stunned that it's Justin Lin, because I thought Justin Lin did a really good job on the other Fast and Furious movies. Um, it Even by its standards, like, there are things that Dom does in this movie that like a human can't do <laughs> like it, it's given up on the idea that these, that they're human characters. They, they, they make a whole joke about that in the film. It's the whole Tyrese's character. But it literally but says that, but self-awareness doesn't excuse it. It doesn't, it doesn't Wait. enter. It doesn't mean you guys are trying to be realistic about a fast and furious movie. What well, are the cars? That's that's trying to be realistic about a series that started out realistic. But wait, no, oh no, that's, God. that's, so that's wait, why do you like fast five? Then fast five is so hold on, 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 hold on. That makes no That's, sense. You're being so persnickety about the this little is details. Why, hold on. This is why I can't figure out whether I can go along with it, enjoy it, or critique it. And first off, I think it's I think it's critic proof, right? I, I think whatever we say about it, people are going to go see it regardless. But I can't figure out if if F9 at this point is in on the joke or if they take themselves very seriously. They're 100. That, that, that's the whole balance of the Fast franchise. They're both in on the joke. And they take themselves seriously. That's how every movie has ever been. Because every single movie does something ridiculous, but then they also make a grounded emotional film at the same mm-hmm. time, in my opinion. So I think they've always been in that gray area of we take ourselves seriously, but we also know we're ridiculous. You have cars skydiving in Furious 7, but that movie also has a beautiful emotional core to it, in my opinion. Especially that ending with Paul and, and Vin uh, dividing off. Like, yeah. I think seven is is amazing and five is amazing i have to say like i understand the idea of the franchise getting so ridiculous but they've been ridiculous since four then i think this is not new i think it's losing that emotional component and i think the thing that's taking the emotional component out of it is the spy stuff i don't care about spy stuff but gabe hates seven and seven i would argue is probably one of the best when it comes to emotion yeah but again uh... 
He doesn't like the character. We feel differently about this. And what I was trying to say when we prefaced this whole discussion was at four or five, they started going this way. The mm-hmm. things that I liked about it stayed here, and they started going this way. And you're right. They've, you're, like you said, at four, they started getting more and more ridiculous, and that's where they're going. And I understand that there's a big audience out there that is following them with it, but I have not. And so by the time I jump in and check out seven, it doesn't work for me. And that sh- it shouldn't work for me because I didn't like it whenever it was the watered-down version of it, you know, two or three films before that. I was never along for the ride. So as it's heightening, that is why I feel less and less interested in them because... I did never even jumped off the cliff with them, you know, however many. They literally drive before. off a cliff in this. One, <laughs> I wasn't trying to make a pun about that, but yeah. but <laughs> don't you think that jungle scene would have been great if there had been dinosaurs? There is a scene. There's a scene in this movie though <laughs> that we have to discuss. Yeah, well, can we discuss right now, or is it is it, yeah, is it the water? I, is it the water scene? <laughs> I oh like that scene. God. I like that scene. Oh my I like God. that Wait, remind me what scene this is. Is the it the tw- well the twenty minute walk through his life when yeah. Tom is underwater in the tunnel and he, and he, he leaves his own body and we need to, walk, I want to sit walks down metaphysically through. We should do a bonus. We should do some bonus existence. episodes. I want to okay. sit down one on one with Kevin. Yeah, and have an earnest. No, Kevin, you don't. You don't even know what I'm saying. I'm have. I want to have an earnest. Heartfelt, because because you know I love, like I come from a place of love of having yes. loved the movie so much growing up. To have an earnest conversation about the franchise, where we're just <laughs> it's just nothing but love. We don't criticize it. I don't bring up oh. any of the funny funny bits uh, that I think are stupid. And I'm busy that day. No, no, no. It's just me and Kevin. And then there's well, a fine second. Then. I don't want to be a, part of it anyway. <laughs> I don't either. Then there's a part two where yeah. I sit down with Sean and Jake, and we just <laughs> rip into it. And that way, it's fine. It's like a, it's a two part. We'll see. It's an experiment. We see. You know, if you love it, check this out. If you, the thing if is, you hate it, check I, this I'm out. I'm also, I'm in both of your islands, and that I don't hate. It. I didn't hate yeah. it, and it's not painful in the way that like a bad movie is painful. It's I can't. I just can't figure out what it right. is. I can't figure out if it's serious <laughs> or if it's totally joking. That's the beauty of Fast and Furious. It's right in the middle, man. That's the beauty yeah, of the it, Fast and Furious. It's just for me, yes, the, the, the serious parts are the laughable parts. So it doesn't have the serious component for me. For me. They're, I, they're, like I said, it's the, the, we, we diverged on those paths a long time dude, ago. Dude, I cried so hard at the end of Fast and Furious 7. Like that, that well, shot sure. of Vin and, and yeah, Paul. That's, it was so beautiful. That hit and me too. To, what Franchise James Bond did there. with that movie. Should have ended oh. there. Franchise should have ended there. That should have no, been No, I'm okay well, with they the went, they, they then made a movie that made a billion dollars, so... Fast and, made $1.2 billion. But they're yeah. all in on the spy stuff, and I can't... I, the spy stuff is way too out there for me. I don't like that. Again, I, I said that at it's the beginning. Boring. Like, I really wish that they had found a different way to raise the stakes than that, because it's yeah. just so, like... You got a guy named Mr. Nobody. Mr. Nobody. You've got, you've got a project named The Mr. Aries Nobody. Project. You've <laughs> and, got, okay. like, it just goes. It's like wow, we, they were stealing DVD players, and like we were talking about <laughs> turbochargers. Like I missed. I, I'm not necessarily Dude. like a diehard car guy, but I'm a car guy. Like I like cars, and I enjoy. I've been around cars, you know, mechanics my whole life, kind of thing. And I enjoyed having an actual car movie. Yes, they put you cars do. in the movie. No, Kevin, they don't. The they first put one car- you have, man. I yes, and I'm saying now they put yeah. cars in the movie, but they don't do anything with them. Like they're, you, they're just there because they're like, oh, we're the Fast and Furious movie, so we have to have a Dodge Charger. We have to have whatever sports car. Oh, like, see, 
they show them, one, but it's not like it used to be. It's not. It's not about like the. There's no point of the story where they're talking. There is a about car tomb- show in this movie. There's a whole. There's, a, there's an entire Kevin, sequence in this film that's dedicated to the first movie. Yeah, I know. I know. I know that. That's my point. Like this movie is finally the first time they come back and they go to a flashback to where we actually see a race. Like I yeah. loved that about it. That's great. But like that's no longer what it's about. <laughs> like it's no longer. They had to take a flashback in order to explain a new guy. <laughs> In order for them to even talk about races. Like, Listen, at the end Gabe, of the day, you, is Fast and the going to be on my top ten of the year? It's not. Yes, I hope it's so. It's not, but I still, I really, really enjoyed the film. Okay, okay. okay I, Jake, I, really quickly, uh, Gabe, you mentioned the word stakes. At the junket, I asked each cast member, I meant like okay, we're heading stakes. toward an ending. Do you think that some of the characters need to die? Do you yes. think, oh, like, yeah. to give the film weight, should, and they all said no. Yeah. Vin, Diesel said, Vin Diesel said, well, like, it will, we'll see what happens. But everyone else said, no, no one needs to die. No, and you're to talk- me, that's that's a problem. That's a massive well, I'm, problem. Whoa, I'm okay with that, You're talking about stakes, but yet we have a Black Widow movie coming out. Kev, she Kev, already Kev, died. Kev, Kev, I, Kev, I, Kev. I knew you got to come up with a better way to back. argue. No, no, no. This is, this is the perfect way to argue because you're basically giving well, a pass Well, I have, I have not seen films. or given a pass for Black Widow. No, no, no. I'm not saying Black Widow specifically. I'm saying in the MCU, there are really no stakes. Every character who's died could somehow come back. I mean, it, it, honestly, we've seen it happen a million times. And well, you're I, talking I, about I, a universe where, like, like people that were tearing holes in dimensions, and we're talking about superheroes. Right, like, that's... Right. But my point is, you're, you're you're allowing stakes in one to be like it's it's interesting to me because in the feels. MCU. But even, okay, but even in like okay, you're watching Lost. One of the things I right. always loved about Lost, and this was a big deal for network television in the early 2000s, is that characters died. Sure, characters like there were like there was weight okay. to that, and that was a big deal. Yeah, the, the, you know we all went into Game of Thrones. The final season, thinking who is going to die, because we thought people needed to die. And as they enter to the end of these Fast and Furious films, I'm okay. sorry, Dom or or me or someone needs to die. To I know, I, but I, Tony Stark, Tony Stark didn't die till the 23rd MCU film. But he wasn't. So in we're only every on nine, one. man. Okay, can we're I? We're only can on I, nine. Uh, again, Kevin, I, I don't think the comparison thing is a. Is, it's a complete. Com- it was not because Tony Stark comparison. wasn't in all twenty-three Marvel films. He was in at least six or seven of them, and he should have died, right? We got to move on after this, but I disagree with Jake. I am totally okay with it being the kind of franchise where nobody dies. Like I'm okay with it being, I'm okay with it being a ridiculous franchise, and it be like like there are TV shows where there aren't the, the death stakes. That's not Game of Thrones. Like everything doesn't have to be Game of Thrones for me. I like. I can I can enjoy the kind of storytelling where it's like I know I'm going to have these characters forever kind of thing. See, so I, I disagree with you. I'm in waiting that on which it, one of us gets killed that. off first. <laughs> well, I have plans. I've written <laughs> Jake one of the toys. To, hey, Jake one of the toys to really burn in that in that fire. Yeah. In Toy Story Three. Stakes. Yeah, stakes. finally. Real stakes. They got Jake's stakes. Jake's stakes. We got to end it there. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's it. All right, let's get to the blend game. Uh, Cinematographer. We're going to cinematographer this week. uh, The great Rachel Morrison, who has an incredible, incredible body of work. And I'm going to go first and surprise a lot of people because obviously she shot Black Panther for Ryan Coogler. um, But I'm going with her work with Coogler on Fruitvale Station. Um, It is the urgency and the um, uncomfortableness. I, I, maybe I'm giving it to her mostly just for the, the the train station scene, which is what that what that film builds up to. The way that she follows um, Michael B. Jordan's character around through the course of his day gives it a sort of docu reality feel to it. Um, it's handheld, but it isn't that sort of jiggly, over the top, like 
calling attention to itself type of handheld uses a ton of natural light which i think is really fantastic captures oakland uh you know oakland is just as significant to the to that story uh, as the characters that are involved in it but that sequence at the train station makes you feel like you just want to turn away you just want to interfere somehow like she stages it kugler stages it the way the actors are the way that it's shot it's at dusk it uses the train lighting around it to to give it sort of that uncomfortable like you just feel like you're there you feel like that she has created this this scene and you're witnessing something that you a don't want to witness uh probably shouldn't be as close as you are to it and i think that the work that she did as a cinematographer for fruitvale station uh earned that film uh so much of its attention and you know Kugler's approach obviously and they collaborate together on it but i think the way that that film looks gives it that that level of realism that made me feel like oh i'm watching footage from the actual event and uh and she just immersed us in it for that reason kev where are you going on rachel morrison uh, fruitvale as well i mean yeah. I, again it's a it's that film had a very big impact on me as an audience member i i mean i so much so i remember just sitting in the theater with lauren afterwards and we literally watched the entire credits in tears. Like I mm. literally remember we were at the Angelica theater in Fairfax. Um, like you said, it puts you there. It's a, it's a story that I it is shot in a way where you feel like you're watching the real events go down um, because Michael B. Jordan is so fantastic in that role. The way Rachel, uh, you know, captures the film. And as you mentioned with the train station, I mean, it is just, it's a story that I, I had heard about, but I didn't know a ton about, but now that I've watched the film and I, and I mean this in the most respectful way possible, I feel like I, I, I saw it. I saw it the way it went down. Yeah. And, and, and I mean that in the sense that I, the, the way Ryan Coogler and Rachel captured the story on screen gave me a, a deeper appreciation in terms of understanding what happened. Um, and while I'll, I don't, know of any footage that exists that I've seen. I know that there's certain footage that has been out in terms of people had their cell phones, and, um, but I genuinely feel like they captured the reality of that situation, the intensity of the situation. Um, and it's all through the camera work, the way the camera moves, the way Ryan has Rachel uh, move the camera. And it's just, it's an astounding piece of cinema. And I, obviously we saw that led to Creed. Um, I know she didn't shoot Creed, but like Ryan, you know, just an incredible filmmaker. Then she came back, obviously, for um, Black Panther. So mm -hmm. I think Fruitvale is the best thing she's done. Jake, where are you going? Uh, I went the opposite direction of you guys. I went Mudbound. Um, <laughs> you guys went for more of a gritty realism. I went for more of, like, the glossy, kind of more beautiful sweeping shots. Um, in particular because she somehow took... Uh, what is not a necessarily attractive-looking landscape, which is post-World War II rural Mississippi, and somehow made it beautiful. She made a, a way of life, a very harsh way of life, a very harsh time period, a very harsh period of the country, uh, both physically and just in the time era, look gorgeous. Um, and and uh, it is sort of the um, that ballpark of just, you know, it's that cliche of like, oh, you could frame it and... And, you know, every frame put it on. So that's, I went, I went there. Well, so did uh, Rachel Ho, Jeff Maiman, and several others picked Mudbound. Uh, John Palmer and many others went with Black Panther. Michelle Garris said Dope. Dope is a fantastic film. That if you haven't Dope seen is it amazing. Yet, check it out. And Carlos uh, Diaz Reyes went with Sound of My Voice. So thank you, everybody, for chiming in on Rachel Morrison's uh, filmography. Next week's <coughs> is going to be... Uh, a ton of fun. You heard him on this week's episode. 
For next week, we're going to be playing hashtag Steven Soderbergh blend. So bring your favorite Soderbergh films. Uh, let us know on social media using hashtag Steven Soderbergh or uh, via email at realblend.com. That's where you also can leave us a review. Uh, head over to Apple Podcasts if you want to leave us a review there or email us at realblend.com. Our next premium episode uh, along those lines is a mailbag. And so if you have questions for the show, for any of the hosts on the show, um, hit us up at cinemablend.com uh, at realblend at cinemablend.com and then of course if you want to access the premium episodes of the show at cinemablend.com backslash realblendpremium I'm going to point out our social media uh, channels again because we think that announcement a very fun announcement is going to be coming momentarily and we should have it up uh, either at Jake's Takes at Kevin McCarthy TV at Sean underscore O'Connell uh, at Gabe Kovach and at realblend we'll blast that information as quickly as we can uh, and then hopefully that means next week's series of episodes will be pretty special. Anything else you guys want to add? Well, let's get the hell out of here then. <laughs> Minority Report. There you go. Hubie. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.